Genesis 6, 5 through 18. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Thanks, Seth, for reading. Question to begin our time together today, and that is, did you like field trips as a kid when you were in school? Did you like field trips? I loved them. I absolutely loved them, except for one field trip that I did not love at all. That field trip, I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, and that field trip was to the Riverbank Zoo in Columbia, South Carolina. And part of the challenge of going to Riverbank Zoo in Columbia, South Carolina, is the 80 to 90 minute bus ride in heat, in, and you can imagine in Georgia where I think, I think the temperature fluctuates between about 95 degrees and 105 degrees. And the humidity fluctuates between like 270% and 280%. And so the yellow school bus, because this was no coach bus or charter bus, the yellow school bus that was going down the road was just like, like an oven, which did wonders for the lunch we had to pack. Of course, I always pack the uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I think I had it every day of my school life. So I packed that sandwich, and there, is, there are a few things as like gross as a warm peanut butter and jelly sandwich because it's been sitting in a bus, a hot bus, for a long time. I have to tell you, too, like, I, I don't care to eat anything when I'm that hot. Like, nothing sounds good. Nothing smells good either when it's that hot, certainly not a zoo. And... Also, I'm generally not interested in feeding animals. Some people, that's their thing. Some people love it. I would not be one of those persons. And then the snake exhibit. The snake exhibit always has creeped me out. It still does. I have no time for it. So when when we read of a story of a lot of animals being in a boat, 
There's nothing romantic about that picture to me. Like, there's nothing that appealing. Maybe it, maybe it would be the, the place of your dreams. It certainly isn't mine. It's strange what we've done to the Noah story. I mean, it, you can get Noah's Ark wallpaper. You can decorate a, a toddler, a preschooler's room in all things Noah's Ark, which when you really, really track with the story, could be a tad disturbing. It's just, it's interesting. They even have the Fisher-Price, Little People, Noah's Ark set. Full disclosure, we bought one of those. Our kids have played with those. It just is interesting. There certainly are movies. Some of them subtly mock the story that we read. Others are not so subtle about it. It's just the total, total mocking of it. It is interesting, though. This story gets our attention. It is meant not just to be fascinated by, but the story is meant to be taken seriously. It's a story to cause us to reflect. And what I want us to do today is I want us to recognize the relevance of this story for our lives. And maybe even again, the Fisher-Price Noah's Ark set, maybe it is even a little bit helpful because what we do with toys like that is we, we, can, we can live in that world a little bit and we can pull that world into our world a little bit. So there is something about our imagination, and, and I think that will be helpful to us to actually pull up 2022 into the, the story and take all of our hopes and our dreams and our priorities and our wishes and our projects and our ambitions and our family life and, and live in this story. We're going to ask, what does this story have to tell me? And I think you might be surprised because Scripture is not passive. Scripture, God's word is active and it goes to work. If we have hearts that are receptive, if we have hearts ready to listen, God will speak. Of course, the story of Noah takes place in a context and we've been looking at that context over the last several weeks and some of you haven't been here, but you definitely heard a little bit of that a moment or so ago as Seth read. Wider context for, would, for this would be the first several chapters of Genesis that God created a world, and he said that world was very good. He made human beings. He breathed life into them. He made human beings in his own image, gave them the breath of life, formed them. That's what scripture teaches. And these human beings that he's formed, these image bearers rebelled against him. That's the story of scripture. And because of that, this world and our lives are broken. They're ruined In Genesis 6, it's a world that seems to be spiraling. It's a world where sin is out of control. And I I want us to look at some passages. So here, we are going to be going between chapter 6 and chapter 7. A lot of the references are going to be up on the screen, but you're certainly welcome to follow along. I want us to see this world where sin was out of control. Seth read a moment ago, verse five. Do you see that in Genesis six? Genesis six, verse five says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 11, verse 12, it says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, 
It was corrupt. That same wording is used in Genesis 1 where it's God saw the earth and behold it was good. Now it is God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Wickedness is great. The word corruption is used repeatedly. So think of a hard drive that gets corrupted. Think of a file that gets corrupted and becomes almost useless to you. It's ruined. You can't access something because the whole thing's been corrupted or it will only take great effort to try to restore that file that's been corrupted. That's the word here. So again, I I want to ask some questions today. And one of those questions would be, what does this story teach us or tell us about sin? What does this story teach or tell us about sin? Do I see a connection between Noah's world and the great wickedness and only evil continually and violence and corruption and our world? Would our answer be, not really, there's not much of a connection. Is there some level maybe of moral superiority? We've, we've moved society a long way from that. We would never think about violence or corruption or evil intentions. I mean, you go very far down that road and you recognize what Scripture has always taught. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, that says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick who can understand it. Romans 3, which reminds us there's no human, not you, not me, that is righteous, no, not one. Jesus certainly would emphasize that in Matthew 15, where Jesus said, For from the heart... Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. Paul recognized the same thing in Galatians 5. When you talk about the works of our flesh, so this kind of the works of our heart, our flesh, what we want to do, what we're thinking about, what's going on in our world. The works of the flesh are obvious, he says. So what are they? Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and everything else that's similar to it. Is there any resemblance in the world of Noah, in our world? Does that have any resemblance to your dorm? Is there any resemblance to the middle school, high school you attend? Any resemblance to Cleveland Avenue on a weekend? And, and we, can, we can see that maybe clearly, but any, any idea of factions and jealousies ever happen in your office? With the people you work with? Any outbursts of anger with family? You see, we haven't, we haven't moved. I mean, we might have like cleaned up more hidden suburban versions of how this sin may manifest, but I'm positive. We can go to Newark, we can go to Hocaston, and we can go to Bear, and we can go to Newcastle, we can go to Elkton, we can go to Landenburg, and we can go anywhere. And we see these same kinds of things. This is us. Do we believe it? Do we realize that the impulses of our heart take us in the wrong direction? I would say we, if our actions or how we talk is any indicator, I would say we kind of believe it as a culture. 
We kind of believe there's some bad stuff going on in our heart, kind of. I say kind of because we talk a lot, a lot about, well, what you really, we give this sort of advice, even Christians, we give this sort of advice, you just need to follow your heart. You need to believe in yourself. You need to trust yourself. You need to be true to yourself. You need to be authentic to yourself. And what is always assumed there is like, you're basically a pretty good person. You're basically going to get it right most of the time. You're basically going to be okay. There's main impulse. Of course, there's, you know, maybe a bad side of you, but more often than not, you just kind of trust, rely on yourself, trust your intuition. We even translate that into, instead of talking about the truth, we talk about your truth, my truth. Because we're just so confident, we're so confident that if we just look deep enough inside of ourselves, we can really trust everything that's there. And we put a lot of stock into it, which means we, we do some switcheroos with vocabulary instead of like, I'm not that comfortable talking about my, my uh, evil heart or my wicked heart or my sin. That isn't a way I want to think about myself. So instead, I find a massive vocabulary to talk about my problems, my mistakes, my missteps, my poor choices, my difficulties, my complications, the snags I run into. I mean, there's all different ways. We could go on and on, right? We know this. When there is something that is pointed out that we've done wrong, we excuse, we justify, we blame shift, we find fault in others. If we even get to the point where we see glaring holes in our own lives, well, January is always coming and there's always a chance to make some resolutions. Look for some turnaround. Like maybe now I can reach the full potential of who I am. Again, that's why I say, I think we kind of believe in the effects of sin, but I'm asking God to show us what we need to see. I'm not saying, I'm not saying, so don't hear me say that all of us are 100% the worst version of ourselves all the time. We're not. I am asking us to be honest that there are some dark places our hearts can go. There are times where we act like jerks to people that, we ha- that, are, that are very kind to us and we have no reason to treat them the way we treat them. There are, kind, there are times where we actually wish for the failures of others when we have no real, real reason to do that. Their success would not hurt us in any way. There are, there are times where we think about things and praise God, what we think about doesn't come to the surface. We don't act on it all the time, but where did those impulses come? Where did those dark impulses come from? We shouldn't kid ourselves. And the challenge is, especially here, is that sin brings judgment. It did in Noah's story and it always does. Here's where, here's where sin goes in Genesis 6 verse 7. It says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man from, blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals. Genesis 6.13, God said to Noah, listen to this judgment that's coming. I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Skip down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then even into the next chapter in Genesis 7, 4, for in seven days I'll send rain on the earth, 40 days, 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. This is some of the worst judgment we read about in Scripture. So we're we're ready to ask another question, and that is what does this story teach us or tell us about judgment? What does it teach us? 
What does it tell us about judgment? What you have is a picture. So again, if you've been with us in Genesis 1 and 2, you saw the picture of creation. This is the opposite of creation. It's not a word, but we, we could call it decreation. It, it is God just unraveling, devastating the world that he had made and devastating it by water. As a matter of fact, Genesis 7 goes into like pretty interesting description of how pretty detailed description of how the water would just be devastating on the earth. And all you have to do is get the horrific pictures that break our hearts of even the last hurricane that has gone through the state of Florida. So when you read in verse 10 of chapter 7 about the waters, the floodwaters coming on the earth, or verse 11, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were open. So it's coming up and it's coming down. And it's the, the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And Verse 17 of chapter 7, the flood continues and the waters increase and bear up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters, verse 18, prevail and increase greatly on the earth. The waters prevail, verse 19, so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above mountains. And verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So this is what judgment looks like. So there's so many comparisons, and I think intentionally so in Genesis. So we got a world that is very good, that's been created, and now God looks at that world and sees only evil continually. And you see a world that brought great pleasure to God. Now God speaks of regret, of where this world has gone. What once was created is now destroyed. What once had been formed by God is now deformed. What once had been filled out, I mean, God filled this world with creatures. And now, instead of filling out, they're being blotted out. This is God's judgment. A Genesis scholar named Ronald Youngblood pointed out God is consistent when it comes to judgment. Anywhere you read it in scripture, it has a lot of the same features. And so he goes into some of those features. He reminds us that God's judgment, this is, this is not arbitrary. And there's all the stories of like the Greek gods and the Roman gods that just wake up in a bad mood one day. This is not arbitrary. There's a reason it always demonstrates God's justice. God always does the right thing. It means death will certainly come. But there's another feature of God's judgment, and that is, in the mercy of God, judgment is announced before it comes. So there's a warning. There's an opportunity to turn. There's an opportunity to repent. It allows time for repentance, even though it's certain that judgment is going to be carried out. There's some time for repentance, and we see these things here. Why am, why am I asking us, here we are in 2022, why, why am I asking us to think about judgment? I mean, Noah, the story of Noah happened a long, long time ago. Well, one of the reasons I'm wanting you to think about it, while, while I, I've thought about it all week long, is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, warned of judgment. And even when speaking of judgment, one of the one of the characters, one of the stories he referred to was Noah. He made a comparison of the judgment that would come. 
The judgment that came in the time of Noah and the judgment that comes when Jesus returns. Listen to what he said. Jesus speaking in Matthew 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. For all the amazing, beautiful descriptions of Jesus, his love, his compassion, his kindness. You have to like kind of rewrite scripture in many, many places if you're going to write out all the times that he spoke of judgment, of judgment coming. This world is sinful and it will be judged. There's like a final judgment. And his first followers talked about this final judgment, whether it's Peter or Paul or John spoke of this final judgment that was coming. And that judgment would not be by water, but it would be by fire, a refining fire. And out of that would come new heavens and new earth, refined. No more wickedness, no more sin. And actually the judgment that would face those that would oppose God, that would rebel against God, they would have no time for God. They would think they had better ideas of the world than God would have. It's actually that judgment is called the lake of fire. Conscious torment separated from God. It's intense and it's real. And so the question I, I guess I would want you to think about today is how real does God's judgment seem How seriously do you take it? Do you assume you can beat it? You play video games, you can get some cheat codes and get a new life, get some new characters, get to the next level. Does anyone realistically think they're going to cheat their way out of the judgment of God on our sin? I mean, maybe, maybe you did skate by and a class or two or three or four. You didn't really take any assignment seriously. You didn't turn in your homework. You didn't do that great or whatever. Maybe, maybe you have gotten by by kind of slacking at work. Maybe no one's ever called you on how consistently you underperform. How maybe you even undermine the whole mission of the, the... I mean, maybe you've never had to face the consequences of that. Do you just assume that you will meet God on your own terms. You can roll the dice and not take God's judgment so seriously that you're going to like actually change anything in your life or do something you don't want to do. Do we think that way? What does it look like when we assume it just isn't going to happen? Scripture gives words to this. Like Romans 6.23 says, the payment, the wages of sin is death. And the story of Noah reminds us of it. Here's what judgment looks like. Genesis 7:23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. And then these words that ought to be sobering to us, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. As sobering as it is, I also find, like so far, there, there just hasn't been much good news, but there is good news here in that you actually read of eight individuals that were spared. Only Noah 
was left and those who were with him. How did Noah survive? What's interesting in the story of Noah and the ark is like there are these two tracks and one track is certainly talking about sin and judgment and death. And simultaneously, there is this track of God showing amazing grace to Noah and his family. It's right there in verse 8. It says in, Noah, in Genesis 6, 8, it says, Noah found favor. Some translations say grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What it is meant to communicate is, like, there's nothing he did to deserve this. God sees him and God, God gives him favor. God pours out his love and compassion. God rescues Noah. God's not obligated to do this. God was generous. And the good news that is like coming to us in the story is, yeah, God was generous and God did show grace, but he still does. And he still is generous. God initiates a specific plan. Like it wasn't up to Noah how he was going to save himself. God says, this is the way it's going to happen. Even down to chapter six, verse 14 to 16, there are these specific dimensions. I mean, got the length, the breadth, the height of the ark. Here's what the decks are going to be like. Here's what the roof's going to be like. Here's how the door's going to be done. Here's the insulation that you're going to do. I mean, it is like down to detail. God says, you're not going to figure this out. I'm going to initiate a very specific plan for how you're going to be rescued. This is God showing grace, God showing favor. And all this is part of a greater covenant. That's why Genesis 6:18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, a covenant, a covenant. You read very far in scripture and you have to get familiar with, okay, what does covenant mean? A covenant always involves some relationship, right? But it's more than just a relationship. It's a relationship built on a promise. I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. I will do that. I won't do that. It's promises. But it's even another level up. So it's a relationship and it's a promise, but there's something, there's something that's like a vow, like even, even like a wedding vow where you're saying, I promise. And there's some level of assurance and binding yourself to that promise. So when it says God makes this covenant and establishes this covenant, it's this binding promise that he's made. The Bible talks, there's a series of covenants, whether it's a covenant with Noah here, a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Whether it's a covenant with David, it all culminates in what's called the new covenant. And that new covenant isn't Noah or David or Abraham. That new covenant is made by Jesus himself. This is the new covenant. He says, in my blood. In the new covenant, Jesus, which like Noah, found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sinners find favor in the eyes of the Lord and Jesus rescues them from their sin, takes their sin upon himself. The cross actually becomes sin, the language of scripture says, transfers their guilt. Sinners, like us, transfers our guilt onto himself, atones for our sin, and brings people life through the resurrection. And he binds us to himself. Like we are bound to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We're sealed until the day we're redeemed. We talked about serious things. We've talked about sin and we've talked about judgment, but what does this story tell us about our rescue? 
What does this story tell us about rescue? What it tells us as far as Noah goes, there is no hope of rescue for Noah and his family except for this ark. What does this tell us about rescue? Well, for Noah, in Genesis 7, 7, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape. This was the only way they were going to escape. Verse 16 of Genesis 7, they go into the ark and what does it say there at the end? The Lord shut him in. Like there's a protection and security involved there. And then again, verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. What does this story tell me about rescue? Well, it tells me there's one path of rescue. And God, God says, here's the path. I think that ought to challenge us. Because I find, I often think there's going to be rescue in some other thing. I often find there's other like self-rescue plans that I come up with. Oh, I'm sure I wouldn't label it that way. But I want to ask you to think about what tells you everything's going to be okay? What tells you as messed up as this world is, as messed up as your life is, it's all going to be okay? Whatever is telling you that, you're probably counting on to rescue you. I find that if I'm not careful, I can look at this tough world and think, and this world may be messed up, but you know what? I'm trying my best to raise a good family. And someday I can look at my family and go, you know what? The world's going to be okay. And I can put my hope in that. Is it not that hard to think if I make a certain amount of money, it's going to buy me a certain level of comfort in my life? And you know what? I mean, it may get rocky. The stock market might get rocky, but I can look to that and go, you know what? It's all going to be okay. Because I've made enough money, I've tucked enough away, that my life is pretty insulated here. I think I'm okay. Or maybe it's achievement for you. If everything's taken away from you, you go, you know what, but I still did this, and I still did this, and other people still recognize that I was this, and I still made it here, and I said, and nobody will ever take it away from me, and I can kind of rely on, that's, that's what I did, that's who I am. I can always feel okay about that. Or maybe it's that everyone likes you. Everyone. People don't get mad at you. You know how to like be the person that just makes everybody happy. And as long as you can do that, everything's okay. As long as nobody's frustrated with you, you're going to be okay. Life may get tough, but you're okay. Or maybe you're just, you found a way to control a lot. Maybe you found a way to control a lot of people. And they do what you say. And if they don't, they know they're going to pay. And maybe your security comes from being able to control just about everything in your life. Or maybe you find it like, you know what tells me I'm going to be okay is I can look around, maybe even at a sibling or a relative or a friend or a classmate, and you go, at least I'm not that. At least I didn't do that. At least I've never. At least I... And maybe that, when it gets really tough, tells you, maybe it'll be okay. Here's the problem, kind of in keeping with the theme of this story. Any self-salvation project you have, it will leak. 
it will leak. When the storms come, when the water gets out of control, it's not, it's not going to insulate you when you face the, the judgment of God. It's not, it's not going to rescue you. It will be like your, your self-rescue project will be destroyed. We know this. We know some of these things that we think we can control change in a minute. We know this. But we also need to know that God's grace and God's favor and God's rescue The ark didn't leak. The rescue that God provided. There's no no holes in that. There's so many pictures in in the Bible of God saving from distress or judgment kind of through water. I mean, you even have uh, the children of Israel going through the Red Sea and God rescues them and brings judgment on the Egyptians. I think of even Jesus on the boat and the, the waves are crazy and one place Jesus speaks to the water and they're calm and all the disciples with him are okay because Jesus is in the boat. Another place where he even walks on water, everything's okay because he's there. I think that may be one of the reasons why baptism is such a powerful picture because it's as if you go into the water experiencing the judgment, but you come out with new life, recognizing once again, God protects and God preserves. Where does all this leave you? because I do realize all the talk about sin and judgment can leave you feeling very exposed, be very uncomfortable, hard to acknowledge. But that actually may be a good thing. Because the story that Genesis seems to be telling, the first several chapters, goes something like this. If we were kind of plotted out, we'd go, well, God created everything, right? There's creation. But then there's there's the fall, there's a rebellion. And because of that, what Genesis 6 seems to communicate is, yeah, because of that, there's going to be judgment and judgment is going to end in death. And that seems like the story that our lives, maybe you feel exposed by your own sin and the judgment of God coming. But Genesis reminds us that there actually is a way this story gets rewritten. It gets rewritten to look something like this. Yes, creation, and yes, there's a fall, but what if there are, Instead of judgment, a rescue comes. And what if that rescue leads to life? This is always personal. So there weren't generic people saved. Like it doesn't just talk about individuals. It talks about people, the family of Noah. It gives the name, names of the kids. We sang it a moment ago when we sang Before the Throne of God. We said, my name is graven on his hands. I think it's so interesting that Scripture regularly says he calls us by name. So whatever favor or grace or rescue we enjoy, it's not generic. It's very personal to God. It's very personal to us. Even when Jesus is on the earth, how many times did he call individuals by their name? And then it says our names are written in the book of life. Here's what I really believe. It's just as this story shows you how it can be rewritten, God is rewriting stories in this room. You can look back and see this is where my life or this is where my family's life was headed toward death, headed toward judgment. 
And God, because he is just like this. Maybe it was when you were in high school. Maybe it was after a failed marriage. Maybe it was in college. Maybe it was in the prime of your life. Maybe even today you've not thought much about God, but he has your attention. And God could be in the process, in the process of rewriting your story. Of it not ending in death. Not ending in addictions. Not ending in despair. Not ending in you just trying to make some meaning out of your life, but and always failing to really do it, but what if God writes rescue over that story and gives you life? We've, we're bridging worlds like we're taking the world of Genesis and Noah and we're bringing it into our world. And the ark reminds us, the ark reminds us God saves, that's what he does and his voice is calling to us and it's gonna require trust and dependence, not on ourselves, but it, reliance on him. Have you come to the point where you've realized this, where you realize rescue is provided? Well, I don't mean to overstate the obvious, but... The facts are, for for Noah to be rescued, he actually did have to walk into that door. Door is open. He had to walk into that to be rescued. He had to believe what God was saying. He had to trust God's word. God told him to make an ark. And Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. God told him to take animals with him. In Genesis 7.5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is a different level. This is not some sort of cultural, nominal commitment. This is him readjusting. This this would be you readjusting the things in your life, the things that maybe matter most, the priorities, the friendships, all the money you spend, the discipline you're trying to pursue, the choices you make, the spouse that you're seeking, the language that you use, the emotions you have, the faith Noah had, and what God had said transformed him. Faith starts by hearing God's word, being convinced of it, and then relying on him. There's the path. Like the path for Noah was the ark, and here's the path for you, believing in what Jesus has done. Believing in his rescue for you on the cross. And then step by step following him in faith. The Bible says that that true faith is going to reveal itself in actions, which is why we'll end with this verse, Genesis 6, 9 tells us these are the generations of Noah. This is the story of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. With respect to his generation, he was blameless. And then that last word, I I want that to stick with you today. Noah walked with God. And I want to ask you, do you walk with God? Do you have a walk with God? If yes, are you going to keep relying on him, doing what he says? And if you don't have a walk with God, would you take a step of faith toward Jesus? Would you rest completely in him? As a matter of fact, I'd love to give a space. If you say, Curtis, that's what I need to do. I need to place my faith in Jesus. I'd love to give you space and time to cry out to the Lord. I think the Lord would hear the prayers of those that desire to be saved today, desire to be rescued. Maybe you pray that prayer to the Lord. I'd love to talk with you more about it afterwards. I know there are probably hundreds of people in this room that would love to have a conversation with you. You say, that's where I need to be. I need to be taking steps toward Christ. Can I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes? Can I give us some space to pray and ask the Lord, like, Lord, what do you have for me? I want to give you an opportunity to respond.
So Father, you know the heart of each one of us and we cannot play games. Everything's in front of you. Everything's revealed in your sight. So I pray that you would give clarity in our souls of where we stand with you. And I pray, I pray for each individual in this room that they would find favor in your sight and to be able to, to be said of our life that we walked with you because of what Christ has done. So thank you for the rescue you've provided in Christ. And so we praise you for who you are and what you've done. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.